0: Hi, this is Johnny Eccles from Love, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts.
1: Welcome to Pamela Debar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture conversation, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party.
2: Thank you for listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. You know, I would like to get cozy with people. I like to have them on my couch whenever possible. And, you know, get real down and yummy with them. You know, I like to get into their deep heart is what I love. And I like to share my stories with them too. So that's what Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party is about. I talk to musicians and they talk to me. Um, I was a groupie, in case you didn't know who I am. I was probably the world's most famous groupie. And all that means is someone who loves music and the people who play it. I do rock tours. I have many books out. My website is Uh I'm on all the different formats, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just follow me. We'll have a lot of fun. And Pantheon Podcasts, where I'm happy to be, call it home, has now 50 different shows about music. I mean, incredible stuff. Everything is covered. Believe me. So please tune in to all of them. You know, I know you have a lot more time now, so listen to us.
0: Murray, Murray, playing guitar on the back porch and sitting in my car. Why sing? So sad, Marie Marie, Marie, Marie. It's so lonely if in these farms. Like please come, come with me, me. to the I'm bright lights nice. nice. downtown. Marie, Marie. And I say, hey, pretty girl. Don't you understand?
2: Hello, dolls. You are listening to Pamela Daybar's Pajama Party. And I'm really glad you've joined us today. I have the most incredible guest, oh my God, one of my heroes, his name is Dave Alvin. He was in a band called The Blasters from 79 on. He, he's he been in so many different bands. My favorite band of his is called The Knitters with Exene and uh, John Doe and then he had the guilty men the guilty women the flesh eaters he went on a long train trip tour with jimmy dale gilmore they have a couple records out he has so many records out it's hard to you know there's no way i could list them all here but you're going to hear a lot about all of his incredible exploits being on the road for years and years and years and he's met so many fascinating people and he's an amazing guitar player i even wrote a column on uh, his guitar playing for Guitar Player Magazine. That's how good he is. So, welcome Dave Alvin.
0: Hot air hangs like a dead man From a white oak tree sitting on
3: porches, thinking how things used to be, dark night, it's a dark night,
0: dark night.
2: Hi, Dave
3: hi Pamela how are you
2: oh my god it's such a thrill and an honor to be able to talk to you for a whole freaking hour
3: <laughs> I'm, wow. I'm looking forward to it
2: yes I'm just such a huge fan and you know I've got to admit I, when the blasters came out in 79 I was a brand new mom so I didn't get a load of you guys at first
3: well um, a lot of people didn't I wouldn't feel too bad <laughs> <laughs>
2: You were such an LA phenomenon I mean
3: well it you know it took a long time it it, 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 it all happened quickly in a, over a long period of time Um you know we went from the blasters went from a thing where we couldn't get gigs anywhere um, to slowly sort of becoming you know um, localized heroes in a way
2: yes absolutely I know but, mercy my dear partner in crime and my band and everything has been a fan of your you guys from the beginning
3: yeah well you know i, I knew her uh from way back in the Ashgrove days yes and uh, so i first saw miss Percy around 1970 and um she i was about 14 years old 13 14 years old and it was my first time ever at the Ashgrove and we were seeing the Johnny Otis Orchestra wow, review. Cool. Yeah, which was Johnny Otis, Big Joe Turner, T Bone Walker, Eddie Clean Ed Vincent, Margie Evans, you know. And it was it was a wonderful show because when Johnny had an amazing band, and it was done like an R and B review. Everybody would do three, four songs, get off, bring on the next person. Yes, and, I've uh, seen it.
2: Uh, Incredible show.
3: Yeah. And I uh, I remember sitting uh, and and Miss Mercy and a couple of the other GTOs, might have been you, might have been uh, Miss Christine, I don't know.
2: Yeah, it wasn't me. I wish I'd been there that night.
3: Yeah, but I met they, you at
2: 13.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was cute. <laughs> uh, and they made this entrance into the into the room, the performance room of the Ashgrove. And I just remember being, you know, the, that old term gobsmacked. I was oh. just like, oh, my God. Because one, I would heard of the of the GTOs and was familiar, you know, uh, but I'd never seen them. And there they were. And I was just, a, you know, I was just a kid from Downey. You know, I mean, if, if, if you weren't wearing, um, you know, uh, denim jeans and a white T-shirt, you were from outer space, you know, <laughs> if you were from Downey. And so I remember them walking in and I just – was captivated and entranced and and that never ended you know? did
2: you ever did you speak with them that night
3: uh no oh god no
2: <laughs> yeah we <laughs> were a pretty a blazing bunch of kids you know wow we were, we really wanted to stand out
3: <laughs> yeah uh you you guys were something else you know and um and i remember it, sort of um uh, Trying to, you know, I, I really didn't talk to girls until I was 17. I was so shy. Um, but I remember, I remember, um, we had some sort of conversation that involved my brother more than me because he was the loud, outgoing type, yes. And, um, you know, there used to be the like a lobby, there was a lobby at the Ash Grove, you know, before you went into the performance room, and that's usually where the interactions took place between audience members and and the artists and musicians and whatever else and i remember my brother striking up a conversation with her because um i don't know why but he, <laughs> for a little while and, and he talked with her enough to register in her brain the alvin brothers you know yeah because then yeah. um uh, stop me if i'm babbling too much and then around 1980 early 1980 we were sort of starting to get gigs in la proper in, in hollywood yeah and um we had a gig at the whiskey go go opening for i don't know who um but when we left we were leaving the gig and out in front of the whiskey were these skinhead kids you know who driven up from orange county or whatever and they were bullying they were hassling miss mercy Oh, and,
2: nerve.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, in those days, people were, you know, could be so judgmental, you know, especially kids that didn't quite understand what the whole punk rock community was about. Yeah. And they just thought it was like, okay, we shave our heads and, and get in fights.
2: And be meanies, yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when, when the early days of, like, the LA punk rock scene was all about, just do whatever the fuck you want, you know? So you had all these great bands that all sounded different. There wasn't a yeah. better approach anyway. Um, so my brother and I uh, ran over and, and and got her away from these these guys and threw her in our my '73 Impala. Oh, and, how fabulous! Uh, and uh, she sat in the back seat, and then she's like, "Yeah, you 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 blaster guys, you're the little Alvin Brothers from the Ash Grove."
2: Yes, <laughs> gosh, <K-Mart>. I remembered. <laughs>
3: Yeah, you well, know, she totally remembered. I mean, we're kind of in our way. We're kind of unforgettable once you get a yes, look. Yes, you
2: are. But I, I didn't see you at thirteen, fourteen. I had you already started creating your look. The look you guys had.
3: No, I was I was working on full dork when I was thirteen. I was. You were full, working where? I was working as on my full dork look. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I was a Catholic okay. school kid, so I couldn't grow my hair out long. You know, you had to keep your hair short, and didn't yeah. have any sort of uh, any sort of trace of individuality. You know, um, but but we drove her home that night, and and she just, you know, as she could do, she just went to town, and she told <laughs> us, you know, basically everything that had happened in the eight or nine years since the ash Grove closed. <laughs> Went through, you know, her time in Memphis, went through this, that, and the other. Yes,
2: yes. I'm sure it was entertaining. Oh,
3: it was great, you know, because, you know, the thing about Miss Mercy, you know, she's a rock and roll icon, but, you know, she was a, she was an R&B person.
2: Oh, yes, very much. She now, knew- how did a kid of 13 from Downey wind uh-huh. up at a Johnny Otis show?
3: Uh, my brother and I were, we had, it's a long story. We good. We had, tell it. Well, we had great older cousins who had wonderful tastes in music. My cousin Donna Dixon, um, particularly, was sort of a wild '50s rock and roll girl, and um, she was into uh, you know doo-wop and, and rockabilly and and R and B. You know, so she would give us her records, you know, when when she you know got tired of them or they got scratchy, and so we wound up. At a very young age, having, you know, Ray Charles and Big Joe Turner and a lot of doo stuff, the medallions, you know, the mm-hmm. Jesse Belvin, you know, all those kind of records. And um, then we, um, she also had, she was really cool And that she had in her car, she had one of those 45 record players <sighs> where you can play 45s while you're driving.
0: Yeah. And
3: oh, uh, and she- knew know made- about those. Oh yeah, she would cruise um, when when she was a teenager. The big cruising streets were like Tweedy and Southgate, and um, you know Whittier Boulevard to some extent. And she and her girlfriends, you know, they all wear they all wore the tight uh, what do you call them, pedal pushers? Yes. And they would and and tight sweaters and and they would cruise. They would go cruising Tweedy, you know, as as they used to say, you know. Um, and sometimes she'd be tasked with babysitting us. And so my brother and I'd be in the backseat of her, you know, whatever, her 48 Ford, and <laughs> that she had her 70 or her 45 player in, and she would have, you know, her, you know, one of her girlfriends or two of her girlfriends sitting up front, and then her two little cousins, you know, little six-year-old and eight-year-old cousins in the backseat. And, uh, you know, they cruise Harvey's broiler, in Downey on Firestone Boulevard, which was the hang, you know. for Yeah, for that was
2: like our Van Nuys Boulevard here.
3: Exactly. exactly. Yeah. exactly <laughs> and and she liked, you know, everything from Jimmy Reed to, you know, um, Eddie Cochran. And so we we just soaked that up. And then uh, we had another cousin, older cousin named Mike Keller. And Mike was a folky. And Mike played guitar and banjo, and um, and he introduced us to, you know, Dave Van Rock, Ramblin, Jack Elliott, Sonny Terry Brownie McGee, you know, when we were little kids. So God,
2: Very th- early, you got to hear this great, great music. That's pretty yeah. unusual.
3: Yeah, so by the time we were 13, and, and um, the, these troublemaking uh, great guys in Downey named the Spaulding Brothers, Larry and Dale Spaulding, had been saying, you guys got to go to the Astro. You want to see the, you want to see the real shit. You got to go to the Astro. And so we made the drive, you know, it was like 20, 25 miles up from Downey. So it was, it was going to a different world for us. And, um, and so that's what a 13 year old kid was doing at the Astro.
2: (laughs) And did that, was that like a, a life changing night? I mean, at that, when did you decide to, to make music yourself at that time?
3: Uh, I didn't decide really to make music until I was in my early 20s in the sense that, hey, maybe I could do this for a living. But, uh, yeah, I had already seen Jimi Hendrix twice. And, oh, lucky. lucky. Uh, my, mother, my mother was the most wonderful, patient mother in the world. Um, my mother had been a, um, uh, a sort of small-time, vaudeville, contortionist dancer in the 30s. And uh, her first husband, who was a horrible human being, um, you know, knocked that out of her. And, um, and you know, she became a factory, you know, girl. And she, wor- she was a factory girl for a decade or 12 years until she met our dad and, and they got married. And um, so she always kind of, you know, she always wanted to marry Gene Kelly or Clark Gable. And she... She could have
2: been a GTO.
3: She could have been a, my mom actually could have. Yeah. <laughs> you guys would have got along.
0: Oh.
3: So, um, she, she kind of um, allowed us to cultivate our interest in in, in music and, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to use the word show business, but you know, in performance. Uh, and so my mom would drive, you know, at first my brother, uh, and his friends would go to the shrine exposition hall oh yeah uh, and my mother and i would sit out in the car you know parked on west adams or figueroa yeah my brother would go in and you know see you know um you know henryx or the who or or fleetwood Mac you know the early fleetwood mac with peter green or yeah. um you know, the mother I was at
2: all those early shows there
3: yeah, well, I was out in the car. My mom's forty minutes to baker, and uh, she <laughs> come out and said hi. Um, but then, not that long after that, um, she started taking, allowing me to go to shows like that when I was like twelve. And so, because of that, I got to see Cream. Uh, I got to see, like I said, Jimi Hendrix twice. And my mom would make sandwiches for me. Put oh. a little brown paper bag and and warn me. She said, like, "Do not eat or drink anything that they give you in oh. there, because oh. it's all laced with LSD." And
2: uh, she and, may have been right.
3: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. especially <laughs> <laughs> oh, position. Uh, and so I would sit there. You know, I'd take one or two of my friends um, from school, and and yeah, we saw some amazing shows. Um, so by the time I saw. The Johnny Otis show, yeah, I, I had already had my life changed by Jimi Hendrix. Oh,
2: okay, okay.
3: But then, seeing Big Joe Turner and T Bone Walker with a great band, and they were both, uh, T Bone and Big Joe, they were they were they were near the tail end of their prime, but they were still in their prime, if that makes sense.
2: Sure, so, I'm sure they never left their prime.
3: Music well, like you, you know, you know, um, so. Yeah, there were certain shows that, that meant the world to me. Seeing Jimi Hendrix at the Devonshire Downs um, uh, Music Festival. Well, oh,
2: yeah. At, I was there with the Christine and uh, Sandra. In fact, most of the GTOs were at that show. That was insane.
3: Yeah, and it was, <laughs> yeah. the, jam, it was the day he did the jam session um, because I guess he was frustrated about the experience performance or something, but it was late afternoon, and it was Buddy Miles on drums, uh Jimi Hendrix on guitar I think I think Harvey Brooks was on bass I'm not 100% sure of that and eventually the, a horn section either from the electric flag or somebody got up and play you know joined in mm. and just seeing Jimi Hendrix uh, I mean forget it you know unleashed well <laughs> it, it you know I wrote a song on an album I, uh, that I did called Dave Alvin and the Guilty Women and I wrote a song about my mom and Jimmy Hendrix, you know. And, oh, and the, let's uh,
2: hear that one.
3: Yeah, the uh, what's
2: what's it called? It's
3: called, it's called Nana, N A N A. Okay, that's my mom's nickname, Nana and Jimmy.
0: My mother told me Be a good boy And don't do Nothing wrong And she wrapped up A sandwich for me To take along Cause I was gonna see Jimmy and nothing's gonna Be the same She drove across town In her old Chevy she parked and waited for us outside, she said be careful honey of those crazy people inside, cause I was going to see Jimmy and I told
3: And the the, the 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 sort of recurring line in there, you know, is that I'm going to see Jimmy and nothing's going to be the same. Because it yeah. happened. It's just like, okay, the world is now officially different. My heroes are no longer John Wayne and whoever else. <laughs> you know, Jimmy Hendrix, you know? And-
2: yeah, for sure. Boy, a lot of different musicians felt that way. I'm sure you're familiar with, the, you know, when he played London the first time and did Sgt. Pepper. And all the big stars were there, Paul McCartney and Pete Townsend, and they all said, uh-oh, <laughs> you know,
3: yeah, What's, What next? Yeah, game changer.
2: Everything's changing, yeah.
3: Yeah, you know, and he had that thing where I could recognize by that point, even when I was 12, I understood, I understood the blues form. I knew what a blues, you know, I knew what 12-bar blues meant, and I knew... You know instinctually what a blue scale was, and so you had this guy up there, and I already knew at twelve. Here's a guy that's taking everything that had come before him and taking it, you know, lovingly, taking it into new new areas that are that are just beyond our comprehension at times, and uh, yes, and so um, I I. I When I saw Big Joe and T Bone, whatever, you know, a year and a half later, um, it was like, okay, I see all the connections here. Everything's connected, you know. Mm -hmm. And again, they were, Big Joe and T Bone were still close enough to their prime that they had this sort of star charisma. You know, they weren't just being trotted out as relics. These were, you know, there was, the, the audience was still a community there was still a blues community, you know? Yeah. That, it's great and, you
2: got to experience that.
3: Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely lucky. I got to see that. So we started sneaking into bars after that, you know, because Ed Pearl over at the Ash Grove was, you know, I don't think he wanted to have a bunch of dumb, you know, guys from Downey hanging out at his club, <laughs> but he never really gave us any grief. And, um, and then, you know, we started sneaking into, we started following Big Joe and T-Bone around, you know, sort of like, you know, like, yeah, like groupies, you know, or like deadheads, but we yeah. were, we were, you know, Big Joe heads. And <laughs> so whether they were playing the Ashgrove or whether they were doing the York club down on like, um, what was it? Uh, Florence Avenue uh, or someplace in Vinas on, on, on uh, West Adams, you know, we would show up and, you know, and eventually uh, got to know them, um, you know. Um, wow. Big Joe especially became a, a lifelong family friend. And, oh, that's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah, I've got a lot of, lot of Big Joe Turner stories, you know. Um, um, there was even a time we had uh, Big Joe and T-Bone and Eddie Vincent over to our house in Downey. They were playing a gig in Santa Fe Springs, which is this little town next to Downey. And so before the gig, they came over and had dinner. You know, oh my it was, gosh! You know, it must yeah. have
2: been so incredible for you and Phil. I mean, just to to, to get that far with your heroes. So, yeah. I mean, to come, your your parents were home, right?
3: Oh yeah! Wow! Yeah. Big Joe, Big Joe fell in love with my mom, and my mom fell in love with Big Joe. <laughs> Joe Very he, cool. Yeah, Big Joe just he he took one look at our mother and he said, "You look exactly like my mother," and Aww. they they were bonded from then on until the, you know, until the day they both died, you know, they, 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 remained, you know, close friends. So yeah, we were very, very lucky. And, and, um, you know, whenever I go on, on stage, you know, in a, in a weird way, I have this, um, uh, cosmic transcendentalist view of being on stage in that when you're on stage, you're channeling spirits. And so, you know, when I go on stage, even if I'm not playing, you know, if it doesn't matter where I'm playing a blues song or whatever I'm playing, I am, they're up there with me, all these ghosts, you know, and, (sighs) I love uh, the way you put that. Well, it's kind of true, you know, because when you're on stage, well, all right, when I'm on stage, I can't speak for anyone else on earth, but when I'm on stage, I, if the gig is good and everything's clicking, um, you get into a zone, you know, similar to a runner's high or something, mm-hmm. um, where there is no, there is no past, there's no future, there's, there's no present, there's just all of it. Yeah. You know? And that's to me the addicting part. It's why I love playing live more than anything. Is well, I, you I certainly
2: play live a lot. I don't know anyone who's on the road as much as you
3: are. Not these days.
2: <laughs> well, I know. Up until, you know, March, yes. Yeah. You were, you were, I mean, you, gosh, I mean, you've had so many bands. Let's name them. The Blasters, the Knitters, the Guilty <laughs> Men and the Guilty Women, the Flesh Eaters. and
3: Ones. And, and the, you played
2: with X, too.
3: Yeah, and the Pleasure Barons.
2: Pleasure Barons. That sounds yeah. pretty good.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, Pleasure Barons was uh, the brainchild of a guy named the late country Dick Montana. From the beet farmers okay and so the three leaders were me mojo nixon and country dick and we did two tours and the idea we did this like around 1990 and then we did that we did another one in like 92 or 93 and the idea was that eventually we're going to have to play vegas you know and <laughs> What are we going to be like as Vegas acts in 20, 30 years?
2: Okay. Wow. I'm sorry. I missed that.
3: Yeah, that was a pretty good, that was, we were a 14, 15 piece band. You know, we had a horn section, we had backup singers and we're all wearing, you know, sleazy tuxedos. And we're basically doing the same stuff that we were doing, but, you know, we do covers of, you know, take a letter, Maria and, and uh, Tom Jones songs and, you know, uh, sort of, uh, sort of like you're a Vegas act. But then I would do. A version of Johnny Guitar Watson's Gangster of Love, you know, but yeah, song I wouldn't normally do uh, in my normal show just because of the bravado of the lyrics. And but in the Pleasure Bearings, when I'm wearing a, a cheesy tuxedo, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah you can get away with it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, so did you yeah. ever
2: see the Hunt sales in the Big Nine?
3: No, I remember when they were playing, he he came over to when I, I used to live with the drummer of the of the Blasters, Bill Bateman. Mm-hmm. He brought Hunt Sales over to the house one night at around three in the morning. And of course, in those days, you know, we're all wide awake. And <laughs> yeah. So I remember Hunt being over and we just listened to, um, for about an hour, I'll never forget this. He was, he was amped up on something and he just... Oh, yeah. He wanted to hear this Hank Ballard song called sugary And we played that song for an hour straight. <laughs> it you know, sounds you know, like Hunt. Yeah. It was just, you know, so that's my memory of Hunt Sales, besides saying, be <laughs> you know, and, you know, I knew he was a great musician and everything, but my memory of him is play it again,
2: play it again. Oh, God, to. for an hour. I, I can relate to that, though.
3: Yeah, because the, the arrangement had a weird... Da 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 you know. Yeah. Sugary, sugary. Da 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 da. And you're you <laughs> having trouble getting, figuring out what the time was, you know, on the on the riff. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, he's an amazing drummer, crazy yeah. good, like sick, really. He's one of my very favorite drummers. And he had a band called the Hunt Sales, and the Big Nine, and they were like what you're describing. They were, they did the splits. They, you know, they danced all over the stage, and they were, you know timeless yeah timeless type songs yeah i remember that when they played the starwood you Uh played the starwood i'm sure right oh
3: oh yes i had to settle up in those days i i was the quote-unquote booking agent for the blasters early on okay so there were nights that i you know you'd go after you play and you know you've you've been drinking beer and playing two sets at the starwood and dodging you know projectiles being thrown by the audience (laughs) Uh, you know, I would have to go settle up with either Michelle Myers, who was always, you know, uh, sarcastically sweet. But there were a couple of times I had to settle up with the owner, uh, Eddie Nash, who, yeah. uh, for those of you who don't know, was Eddie Nash Aurelian, who was a, a, a pretty much a gangster, you know. <laughs> and uh, He was w- murdered, right? No, he was involved in the Wonderland murders. With, okay. Uh, you know, he, I remember
2: he, him being involved in something very nefarious in oh, the Little yeah. Canyon.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He he called in the hit on oh. people that um, had had cheated him on a, on a on a on a business deal. We'll put it that way. Okay. And Yikes. Uh, so, but you know, his reputation even before that, you know, was you know don't don't fuck with Eddie Nash. Yeah, I'd have to go in and settle up with this guy, and I, you know, again, I, you know, I've got my full pompadour and the whole bit. And I'm sweaty, and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, but there was one time I, I wrote I wrote this piece, and I'll publish it when it, when I get around to doing a memoir of settling up with Eddie Nash, and because I booked the band in those days, and I was very cautious about, you know, what gigs we would accept, you know, because you, you, you wanted to thread a needle between being cool and, and making money, right? Yeah. And so I had turned down two nights at the Starwood opening for the Ventures and the Ventures had just gotten back together and all that. Yeah. And, um, and you know, we we had opened, this was back when we were just an opening act and I was trying desperately to get us to be a headliner at the Starwood. This was very early on, and and Eddie Nash got me in there, and he he wanted us because we were we were a pretty good draw. He wanted us to open for the Ventures to help out the gig, and we had a, an interesting conversation where he he made it sort of nicely, firmly clear to me that it would be in everyone's best interest. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! And and uh, and so by the time I left, I was like, "Yep, you got it." You know, everybody loves <laughs> adventures. Okay, great- you know, so yeah, so yes, I played the Starwood. I loved the Starwood. <laughs> it was actually my favorite club of all those clubs back in those days. It
2: was a really cool club. It was a it good, was. Size, really yeah. good size, really good size. I actually went there when it was PJs. Wow, I Can Tina, yeah.
3: Wow, that must have been great.
2: It was pretty awesome. All the Rolling Stones were there.
3: Yeah. That era.
2: 69. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I, you just mentioned memoir, and I've been encouraging you to write a memoir.
0: <laughs>
2: and I, your writing, for instance, on Facebook has everyone enthralled. You 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 occasionally write these long, exquisitely written, pithy experiences about life on the road and things like that. And the one you did about Mercy was so beautiful, okay. a tribute to Mercy. So, you know, your, your memoir is gonna be something else. You're such well, an incredible writer.
3: Well, I have mixed feelings, you know, because I studied, uh, when I was, my checkered college career down, down in Long Beach, you know, my biggest influences uh, were, uh, I took uh, classes from these great poets, uh, Gerald Lachlan, Elliot Freed, and Richard Lee, you know, and I and I had um, kind of got, I kind of wanted to be a small press poet was my goal in life.
2: Mm.
3: Back when small presses, you know, were still, you know, sort of a viable creative outlet. And yeah. and these guys taught sort of, you know, raw honesty. And uh, and so this is stuff I wrote back then, and then the stuff I continued to write was pretty raw and honest, but then I did a book, I put out a book of poems uh, and writings, whether you want to call it, poems or not, in the, in the mid-90s, late 90s, and, um, and it did really well, you know, and it was on a small press, um, and, you know, I even read it City Lights, you know, which was like, it oh. was life, you know. Yeah. Uh, but what happened, what I noticed is it's easy to write raw honesty when you're an academic, poetry professor, you know, where <laughs> where no one knows what you look like and no one, you're not, you know, and, you know, my natural shyness interferes. I can tell stories about, you know, other musicians and this and the other all day long. But as far as getting into my private life, I've become more Dylan-esque in that, um, you know, the, 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 the limited time I've been around Bob Dylan, you know, the security is so mandatory for him yeah you know, to keep his sanity to keep his sense of humanity um he has to he has to live a life a certain way and so anyway when i put out this book of poems i started getting some strange people oh yeah. and i just decided you know i will let you in so far and then you know but i can't be the sort of writer that i was and wanted to be when I was a younger guy, you know, when, when no one cared or knew who I was and I could write anything. And now it's more like, well, nice to meet you, you know, but I'll share this with you. I'm not going to share that, you know. And,
2: well, you know, like mentioning Dylan in Chronicles, that's what he did. He chose to write stories that he wanted to share with people. So in writing a memoir, you that's how you can do it. I've, I've suggested that book to so many different people writing a memoir who have that same feeling about wanting to keep a lot of things to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a you, you can do that.
3: Well, you're the yeah. expert. I, w- I will come to you when I get serious about it. I've got all sorts of things sort of scattered, you know, um, and I, I don't know really, um, you know, I mean, I would love to write about, my family and i'd love to write about old california and things like that but but on the other hand i know that what people what people want to read is okay you know tell me about recording with tom waits you know (laughs) you know what i mean which is fine i'll talk about it yes you
2: can do that too you know people i really have found i you know i teach the writing workshops and and uh, i have found people memoirs people's their favorite thing to read they, they want to get into other people's lives so intensely. And, you know, there's a way to do it. Like I said, you you can do all of those things and leave out whatever you want to leave out.
3: Yeah, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah. do it, you know. I mean, there are, there are tales from both me and my brother, let's say, about, you know, Big Joe or T-Bone, you know, or uh, other people, Lightning Hopkins, uh, you know. Um, you know, all sorts of people that I, that, that I was blessed to either know or see from afar, you know, and there are, I know that you understand this, I think, um, there are worlds that are gone that that we know about, that we were in.
2: Yes, it's so important to be a historian for that. It
3: really kind of is, you know. Yes. Um, You know, um, especially, you know, guys like Big Joe Turner were, you know, sort of semi-forgotten. And the sort of blues boom that came in the 60s overlooked guys like Big uh, Joe Turner or Joe Liggins or Roy Brown or Roy Milton, you know, it's the, sort of the sort of the more pop entertainment, you know, the blues purists consider that stuff almost pop music, you know. But no, it's blues. And it's just blues that was, you know, it was the music of its community. And it wasn't, you know, the sort of beautiful folk blues of Sunhouse or Skip James people like that who I love but it was it was just the blues but just a different way of playing it and so a lot of people weren't interested in them when we got to know them and weren't interested in their stories but now they are and, yeah yeah and so you yeah, know I'd love to tell all those stories and I will you know that that that's easy but but then the poet in me wants to like okay well let's get in depth here you know yeah um, yeah,
2: well, you you know you do that on in your Facebook post. Yeah, yeah. There, you know when when you're on the road and you're describing what you see out the bus window, or what are you in a van or a bus?
3: Usually oh, a bus, right? Oh no, God no! What do you think I am, Rockefeller? My, uh, <laughs> anyway' i i know just- I, I, I i i am a, my brother taught me years ago in, in the blasters never accept uh, never accept um uh, what are they what they used to call it um money from the record company for for um for dms no road road expenses i oh. e s and all that' cause you're just you're just losing all you're giving all your money away yeah so yeah we were always in the blasters and ever since. You know, it was all about the vans. You know, and when you're really rocking, you got two vans, yeah, you know, one for the gear, one for the band, and you know. So that's always been. It's always been keep a low overhead. That's how I've managed to survive. You know, yeah, so well, many that, that sucked on the sucked on the nipple of, of tour support. That's the term they used
2: to tour use. tour support.
3: Um, and yeah. you know, and, and then the, the you know their records wouldn't sell. And they'd get dropped, and then they'd have this in, intense, you know, bill that comes due of, okay, remember that bus you liked?
0: And my yeah. brother was
3: wise enough to, like, no, we need to be independent. And so that's always been my motto. And so, yeah, no, I'm a van guy. It's usually a van and two other vehicles, two rental cars. And, uh, you know, for merchandise, you know, one yeah. for gear and one for, you know, just for me to drive around smoking, you know, so...
2: Well, your descriptions of being on the road are so beautiful that, you know, the way you describe the, wherever you're traveling through, some old towns you come across and a lot of California descriptions are so beautiful. Well,
3: thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. You know, I, love, I, love I love reading them. You know, I'm, I'm, my old man, my old man rode the rails out here from Indiana in the Depression. And, um, and my mother, though, uh, was a fourth generation Californian, so I'm fifth. Wow, cool. She instilled in me early on a real love for California, while my old man, on the other hand, instilled in me sort of a skepticism. (laughs) You know, so I have a nice, it's a nice blend of the two of them. I have undying love for California, and I have undying skepticism (laughs) at the same time, you know. And yeah "Yeah, it's the promised land, but eh, be careful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: but be careful, absolutely. The whole Hollywood scene is just impossible to describe. Yeah. I've <laughs> I've always been crazy though about old movies, old Hollywood. When I was a real little Rudolph Valentino, I was oh, yeah. Clark Gable. I mean I went through them all. I just love Hollywood. The idea of Hollywood actually oh, yeah. more is
3: what I love. My mom when when uh, in the same way that she drove me when I was twelve to see Jimi Hendrix was she would drive me at at six years old to the old silent movie theater on fairfax
2: yeah of course it's still there
3: and we would go there and and she would she exposed me to you know of course the buster keaton and Laurel and hardy and charlie chaplin but to you know suddenly a six-year-old kids at school talking about you know yeah son of a chic you know with rudolph valentino
2: yes so hot
3: (laughs) took me to see that or you know, I'd be mentioning obscure comedians, you know, Harry Langdon, to my classmates, and they're looking at me like, "What?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it wow, you had
2: a else. really great upbringing, sounds like.
3: My mom, my mom and dad were wonderful. You know, my my um, I, I they again they they allowed us to go to the ash grow, you yeah. know, as long as we didn't fuck up, you know, as long as we weren't, you know, being jerks, we could we could go and have these experiences. You know, I mean, I don't think they were thrilled sometimes. You know, we didn't tell them necessarily what bars we were sneaking into. But, um, you know, my old man was a union organizer, so he's, he would take my brother and I, um, sometimes the whole family, but usually he'd take my brother and I out of school and we would spend, you know, a week or two weeks in the Southwest, on um, you know, in the Southwest, uh, my old man, you know, he not only worked organizing steel workers in the old steel mills in Maywood and Fontana and Southgate, you know, over on the, you know, lower Southeast side of LA where mm-hmm. we, where we grew up, but also, you know, it was copper miners and, and coal miners and things like that in Colorado, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, Wyoming. So we spent a lot of our youth in, in factory towns, you know, that, um, They were mining towns. Um, And so we saw the various sides of life early on.
2: Mm -hmm. America. Sounds like you got to really see what America was all about.
3: And, and, you know, both the good and the bad. You know, so, um, uh, you know, my mother instilled a love of California and, yeah, a love of old Hollywood and mild man, on the other hand, instilled in us there's you know there's many sides to every story don't believe everything you hear blah blah, mm-hmm.
0: blah
3: you know and working people need need a voice and, and uh, so yeah no i had great parents you know they, they, i did
2: too i so many people in my generation i'm a, a little older than you uh had to fight their parents it was it was a time when no one understood what teenagers were doing (laughs) you know they had no clue about the music revolution sexual revolution social spiritual every kind of revolution was going on and parents could not handle it (laughs) you know they just didn't know how to handle their children so they really washed their hands of a lot of a lot of my my generation and probably into yours but uh but sounds like your parents didn't do that and my parents didn't either my mom wanted me to be me she didn't yeah. want to squelch me, which was very different than many of my friends who died early, really because of that because they had to fight against who they who they really wanted to be
3: oh that's with really, their parents that's an amazing thing that's an amazing thing to say yeah I, I can see that I can see that with some of my friends when you put it that way yeah, I never had to rebel against my parents because you know our our house was known in the neighborhood as as the flop house.
2: <laughs>
3: because my parents would take in strays. You know, there'd be there'd be kids that, that ran away and, and so it'd be yeah, you come stay at our place. And then my mom would get on the phone to their parents and talk to them about, you know, John is a really nice kid and you know, you I don't think you should, you know, chain him in the in the closet, you know. Oh my <laughs> God. You know. Uh, um, and so yeah, they I never had to rebel against them. You know, because you know, because of my old man's background and, and you know, my old man was always you know, people there were some people in our hometown of Downey, which was a sort of fairly conservative town that, you know, would tell people, Don't let your you know, don't play with those Alvin boys. Their dad's a well, Oh con-
2: yeah. Same
3: here. Yeah. I was a
2: bad influence on people. But, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was called that from the time I was about eight.
3: Because I,
2: because, <laughs> because I was an only child. Got got away with a lot of stuff. I guess it was perceived that way. In the valley, in Reseda, you know, I had my own bop room, I called it. I had a bedroom and my own little den, you know, and, and the kids wow. wanted to play with me. And My mom did the same thing. She would take kids in who were fighting with their parents and do the same thing your mom did get on the phone and say you know so and so is a very good girl you know
3: <laughs> yeah well you know we had a similar thing my bedroom became a, that's a great term the bop room yes my, my bedroom <laughs> became the bop room because um it was in the very back part of the house and so we had this we had my brother phil and i had already been collecting 78s and 45s and lps yep and uh you know all the all the sort of the, the the you know people would come over just to hang out in in our bop room and listen to records and stay up all night and all that. Yeah, parents were very very forgiving to a point. You know, there there was a line with my old man where it's like, "Ah, oh, Jesus, Goddamn Christ!" You know, <laughs> <laughs> but but on the other hand, now they they allowed us to 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 be us. You know, I think um uh, very they, fortunate. Yeah, Very yeah.
2: it was rare.
3: Yeah, but, and so I never had, you know, where, where other people were in, especially in the late 60s, early 70s, when people were like, you know, you know, fuck, fuck parents, this and the other, I was like, well, I don't know, mine are pretty cool, you know. Same
2: here, same here, I had that, you know, I had my stereo in that back with my bop room and I... It was my spot to listen to music. I, I was I was obsessed to, with music, like you were. Yeah. I was really into, but different music though. I loved Dean Martin when I was a kid.
3: <laughs> oh, I loved everything. I loved everything. <laughs> I, I mean, I I I still to this day, you know, I soak up everything. I think I think most musicians do, whether they admit it or not. There are certainly closed-minded musicians and racist musicians, but in general, if a lick is good, I don't care. Who's playing it, you know? Um, I, I can appreciate the lick. Yeah, and, um, yeah, for sure. I remember having dental surgery a few years back, and, and they had me pretty whacked out. And They had me on the, on the gas and everything. and on the Yeah. And, and there, the, the music was playing, and it was a particular song. that was a big hit in the uh, early 80s, and I remember always hating the song. But I'm sitting there and I'm whacked out and I'm listening to him going, God damn, who is that bass player? <laughs> <laughs> that guy's great. So I, you know, you know, I, you know it, it, the same time that my brother Phil and I were, were sneaking into um, bars to see Big Joe and Lightning Hopkins and, you know, Clifton Chenier, Freddie King, whomever were playing the Chitlin circuit. Um, my brother and I also went to see Bing Crosby. We, we David wanted, Crosby? No, Bing.
2: Bing! Oh my Bing.
3: god. <laughs> we okay. At the <laughs> Taylor Pavilion, and it was, and he was great. You know, so, uh, you know, um, we were big fans of, of early Crosby when he was more of a jazz singer. And yeah.
2: Or, wow.
3: And less of a uh, icon of, of normalcy, and you know. Um, yeah. Ooh, he, he became he, a bit was, of a creep. <laughs> yeah. Well. I've met a lot of musicians that are creeps. So again, it's <laughs> no, that like, versus that. the art thing. <laughs> and what's funny was years later, well, first off, Crosby was great and, uh, and sang his ass off and, and, um, uh, um, but then years later on the punk rock scene in LA, got to be friends with, with his grandson, Dennis Crosby, the late Dennis Crosby, who mm-hmm. was the sweetest guy in the world, looked just like his uncle or just like his grandfather um and uh so yeah it's a weird world
2: yeah. well i'm gonna read a little piece of this you know i love your guitar playing we have to get into your guitar playing because you know i had this uh series in guitar player magazine my top 10 favorite guitarists mm-hmm. so i'm gonna read a little tiny piece of this and then we can talk about your guitar playing okay okay uh the brothers alvin dave and phil were tearing through a wicked big bill Brunsie song off their grammy nominated album common ground and i stood there awestruck dumbstruck for the rest of the set i've always known dave as a stellar songwriter gravelly sexy singer and an la legend since his heady days as founder of the seminal blasters but yowza that night he also became one of my top 10 favorite guitar players Bluesy, bright, naughty, and nice. He held the thing low and tough, like he was in the middle of his honeymoon and just couldn't get enough. I got that thrumming sensation, reminding me of a lyric my ex-hubby Michael came out with. I was feeling hot and sticky down south.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, that was you're you're just a stunningly sexy guitar player. It's just, I don't know, where does that come from?
3: You're very kind. Uh, it comes from a lot of places. One, um, it comes from the, the, the main guitar, guitarists that influenced me. You know, like, again, I don't yeah. play that much like Jimi Hendrix except for uh, uh, the most recent album that I put out. It was a psychedelic album called The Third Mind where I sort of um, allowed myself to do what I've always wanted to do. But, you know, guys like Jimi Hendrix, Johnny Guitar Watson, um, Lightning Hopkins, um, um, you know, some of the early rockabilly guys, you know, um, you know, like Roland James, Cliff Gallup and people like that. They were sexy guitar players, you know, T-Bone Walker was a sexy guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, um the, you know, where the guitar, and I, I think this is true for really any, any instrument at some point, you know, it it, it 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 playing music is when you're really hitting the hitting the mark. Like you're encapsulating everything. You encapsulating all your personality. Yeah. So, you know, there's times I'm a shy guitar player in a song, and then a second later I can be, you know, a very outgoing. You know, yeah. You know, yeah,
2: you have a certain
3: stance. Yeah, yeah, certain
2: stance right. that people are very familiar with your playing.
3: Yeah, you know, it's like when I get to that stance, yeah, look out. <laughs> yeah, and, it's uh,
2: really cool. It's the coolest ever. You right. know, I get, I, I feel like I get in touch with what you were talking about as a player, as yeah. a listener, as a watcher, a listener. I get to that zone with you, you know. Yeah. And that that's why, of course, that's why music is so important because yeah. you're, you touch your audience, your listener, with what is happening inside of you. And it's, you know, that shared experience is what everyone searches for.
3: Yeah, I agree 100%. That's, you know, the, the, the pivotal musical experiences of my life. I remember, I remember the first rock and roll show I ever saw. I was nine years old. And again, it was with my mother, but it was with my sister Mary and all of her friends had gotten tickets to the Rose Bowl. Uh, There was a show that uh, was 1965, and it was uh, the headliner were Hermits, Hermits. Eh. But the other acts were the Turtles, um, the East L.A. Midnighters, the Lovin' Spoonful in their first L.A. appearance, and and this one, the Bobby Fuller Four.
2: Oh, okay. Well, boy, you got to see them. That was a short-lived thing.
3: That was a short-lived thing. (laughs) Trust me. When I saw that and they came out and and they were all kind of wearing these shark skin suits and they, you know, they were direct from whatever, the hullabaloo or shindig. And I saw them in person and, you know, I loved the Love and Spoonful set, but they were like, you know, Greenwich Village and kind of funky and, you know, and and they just had their first set, Do You Believe in Magic? and, And they were great. But Bobby Fuller and the Bobby Fuller Four, you want to talk about sexy? They were uh-huh. sexy. And huh. when I caught that as a nine-year-old kid. I was like, I want to do that.
2: Oh, you so know? that's what made you want to do that. Oh. oh, yeah. No,
3: it goes way back to Bobby Fuller. It was like, uh-huh. you know, that's, that's, you know, you know, two guitars, bass, and drums. That's what I want to do. And they, you know, were Hermits Hermits, when they eventually got on and the, the girls were doing the full, you know, sort of British Invasion screaming yeah, yeah. bit. You know, they were fine. They were whatever. The Bobby Fuller Four and the and the Eleven Spoonful, and but the, the Turtles
2: y- were great too. Oh, they were all great. How much yeah, the harmonies, was, the Turtles, always yeah. so incredible.
3: And, and they were all real bands, you know. Yeah, yeah,
2: um, at but, nine, wow.
3: But on the scale of sexiness, yeah, Bobby Fuller Four, that Whoa. was sexy. That was like, yeah, I want to do, I want to get girls. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I wanted. Those guys are getting girls somehow, and I was only nine years old, and I knew that. Huh. you know.
2: Well, so, he sure had a shocking demise.
3: Jeez. Yeah, yeah, I know. No, it, I never,
2: that was never resolved. No, no. what, what, who did that to him?
3: Yeah, there's a lot of theories, you know. And I've,
2: he was murdered uh, right outside of of Capitol Records, right in his
3: um Capitol, or, or, or I thought it was a recording studio. It might have been like yeah, some, maybe a recording sound studio, sound factory.
2: Right in Hollywood, yeah.
3: Right in Hollywood, yeah, and he
2: and, and he had gasoline down his throat.
3: Yeah, and they called it a suicide. Yep. <laughs>
2: yeah, what a way to go, right?
3: Yeah, yeah let's
2: do it this way.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got a, I got a good plan. You know, my career is just exploding. I'm going <laughs> to kill myself with gasoline. This is great, <laughs> <cooking>, you know.
2: <laughs> that is just a crime that was never solved.
3: Yeah, it's sort of like you know the Sam Cook, uh, the Sam Cook. Oh movie. my God, Sam Cook. I he mean, weird things. Know. Weird things happened back then, and uh, yeah, that's all right. It's just Sam Cook. Oh. Who cares, oh. you know? Um, oh and, God! You know, and, and you know who I think, you know, to me is just a, as a sidebar. You know, like Sam Cook to me is is the guy. You know, Mine he,
2: too. That's how I feel too about Sam.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, had my
2: most spiritual moment on this planet in this lifetime listening to one of his songs like you mentioned earlier with hunt i listened yeah. to that song somewhere there's a girl on his sar collection oh yeah 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 somewhere there's a girl i listened to that probably 60 times and i had this higher state i heard the angels sing and everything oh, yeah. so i'm a big yeah. sam cook fan
3: <laughs> whenever people ask me what religion i am i just tell them I'm, my religion is sam cook's voice <laughs>
2: Yes, that's exactly how I feel.
3: Yeah, I mean, got it, his
2: soul stuff. His oh, ur-
3: Everything about Sam, Sam Cook was, you know, he was sort of the polar opposite of Elvis. They were very similar in many ways because, you know, they were both, you know, drop dead handsome. They were both yeah. deeply talented. The difference was Sam was really smart you know and about yeah
2: he sure was he was
3: that's what was scary i think to a lot of people is how smart he was you know in that he had a business brain as well as an artist's brain and he had a he had you know um political consciousness and you yes know, um and he was all about becoming his own man and becoming his own his own power and um where, you know, Elvis was probably more like me, like, hey, I'm making money. This is great. But Sam was focused on, you know, he had these goals. And he could take everything from gospel and blues and R&B and pop and meld it into this amazing thing. And, you know, it's, it's such a, uh, to me, you know, he's he's still such an influential figure and powerful figure because of that. And, and yes he
2: dared to have his own label
3: exactly and that's
2: what got got him off
3: yeah uh, you yep. know so
2: I wrote a chapter about him in my third fourth third book rock bottom
3: uh-huh. about
2: all the deaths in rock and roll and I really scoped that one out because I'm such a huge fan I went to the motel where he was Wow where he was shot I stood right in that doorway you know of of the office manager's office i i went and got his you know went downtown and got his you know the how they draw the body out on a piece of paper and i had all that stuff i was really obsessed with sam yeah i I found out almost too much about it but we still don't know who did it
3: no we will never know you know growing up around you know um people like big joe turner and especially lee allen who was a huge influence on us who was uh, ah
2: mercy loved fun. him
3: yeah <laughs> and lee you know played this the tenor sax solos down in new orleans on every fat Domino hit every little richard hit you know um yes you know, come on baby let the good time roll by shirley and lee yeah that's her long hair on down the line and lee had moved out here and and around the time i was 13 14 we got to know him and he became you know a lifelong friend and a member of the blasters and all that and he along with big joe and and other members of the of the blues world they all had theories they had theories about the deaths of you know everybody you know jesse belvin's uh, murder in in arkansas sam cook's murder all these handsome young black men suddenly on the verge of success you you know they're dead you know and and so they all had theories you know and they were all different you know, yeah. everybody had a different theory about Johnny Ace, you know, what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, I wrote a song about it. Uh, yes,
2: I know. It's and, one of your
3: best. Yeah, and I tried to balance all the various viewpoints of the Johnny Ace death, you know, but, you know, all those things are fascinating, you know, and, and you know, down even back into the Crooner days, the death, death of Russ Colombo, you know, back in the early 30s. All those things are fascinating to me. Yeah.
2: Well, I want to hear. Let's let's hear Johnny Ace. Okay.
3: Okay.
0: Down in Houston, Texas, on a Christmas night, with a gun in his hand and his name up in lights he was young and handsome the prince of the blues in a shark skin suit and alligator shoes he was flirting with the women who had come backstage and he said ladies want to see me play a wild.
2: A lot of people everyone should know exactly who you are and everything you've done but for those listening (laughs) to this show some of them might not know and i would like to talk about i mean it is my favorite it's like probably my top 10 favorite songs is fourth of july thank you and well you know that i have probably told it to you 10 times but how tell me about that song how did that song
3: come about um uh, uh, um, I wrote it as a poem, uh, oh. it, was, it was like three pages long. Was oh, little, really? It a poem for me. And, um, and it was one of those deals where when it, when the actual event happened, I, I had no, I was working a day job down in Long Beach and, and I was living with my girlfriend at the time in, in South Downey and, and there was, um, we were living this cul-de-sac and it was right across, you know, across the, from the Coca-Cola bottling plant. You know, it was just, it was pretty, pretty bleak. We were in our very early 20s and I had already sort of given up on life. You know, the Ashgrove was gone. Uh, I hadn't discovered the punk rock world yet or anything. And she was working her day job and I was working mine. And it just feel, felt like, well, you know, we're you know, none of us went to Harvard, you know. no, <laughs> Yeah. You know, None of us are going to get anywhere. We're, you know, and, and we only have each other. Blah blah blah. And um, and one Fourth of July, you know, um, I was sitting outside on the stairs having a cigarette, and Mexican kids were down in the cul-de-sac shooting off fireworks, and and the the, the woman that I was with was suffering about a depression. And I was sitting there on the stairs, and I just realized, like I said, I have no intention of ever being a songwriter or anything. Huh? But I knew this was a poem. I just oh. sat there and I said, This is a poem right here. What's happening? And so then years later, I wrote the poem. And then a couple of years after I wrote the poem, I was at a bowling alley. <laughs> and with my girlfriend at the time, that uh, was, was, a, was a, the great poetess, Iris Berry. Mm, And we were watching these friends of ours bowl. We weren't bowling. We were drinking. And and it was the old, I think it was called the Del Rio Lanes, whatever, in East Hollywood. And um, we were sitting there watching, you know, John Doe and and Christy bowl with their girlfriends. And it suddenly hit me. I don't know where it came from, but the song came to me. It just just said, hey, you know that poem you wrote, that three-page poem? Well, well, I'm a, I'm a song. You should go write me now. And oh, I, I told Iris, I gotta, I gotta go. I drove <sighs> her home to Disgraceland uh, where she, you know, she was the queen of Disgraceland and I went home and about an hour and a half later, I had the song, called her up, played it, played it to her over the phone. I said, this is why we left the bowling alley <sighs> and I played her the song and, and, uh, so, yeah, it was one of those sometimes when you write songs, um, you know, you, you you wrestle with them for months or years even. Uh-huh, months. yes. Sometimes just walk up and say, hi, I'm here. You know? yeah. And that was a, hello, I'm here. I'm ready to be written now.
2: Gosh, that's thrilling, isn't it? When that happens, I can, I can, I can sort of imagine
3: uh, how that is
2: as a writer, but wow.
3: It's the best high. Yes,
2: yeah. yes. And, um, of course, that song, you know, is... <sighs> It's played everywhere on Earth, probably on the 4th of July. (laughs) I always post it on the 4th of July.
3: You know, it's really moving to me because when I wrote it, I really thought no one else on earth will get this. And what was happening in my life was I had left the Blasters. And in the Blasters, I wrote songs for my brother, Phil, to sing. Yes. So I wrote songs that he and I shared experiences, you know, or shared viewpoints. And I knew that, okay, my brother will sing this because he and I experienced this together or... I know what he's feeling, or he and I feel similar, blah, blah, blah. And after I left the Blasters, I decided, okay, I'm only going to write songs for me. If anybody else wants to sing them, great, I'd love that. Mm-hmm. But it's really, I uh, just write them for me. So that was really the first song that I wrote for me because I knew oh, okay. something my brother, he might relate to, or anybody else might relate to. But what I, if I would have written it for, if I was writing it for someone else to sing and not me, it would have been a different song and not as good.
2: Yeah, um, really personal personal moment, yeah.
3: Because because it was personal, I figured no one else on earth is going to understand this. And boy, was I wrong. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. And your other well-known songs are Marie Marie, of course. Yeah. It's been covered by a lot of people. Yeah. And Long White Cadillac, which Dwight covered.
0: Yeah,
3: Dwight Dwight got me out of I was broke (laughs) And when Dwight covered that you know, uh, I remember he called me up and he said, Hey man, um, we just cut long white Cadillac. And oh. this, like, I think it was for his uh, third album. And I had known Dwight, Dwight and I had been friends when he was playing, you know, to 20 people at the Palomino. On Yes. People. I
2: was just going to say, you must've hung out with him at the Palomino.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, he had a great, such a great band, you know, uh, at that time with Brantley Kearns and Pete Anderson and, uh, J.D. Foster and uh, uh, Jeff Donovan. It It's just an amazing band with a great singer leading it, and they're playing the 20 people at Palomino. Yeah, yeah, just like the
2: Burrito Brothers. Sometimes Mercy and I were there at the Palomino, and there were literally a dozen people there.
3: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Doesn't make
2: sense to me, but there it is.
3: I knew, the first time I saw Dwight, I I said, well, this guy's a star.
2: Yeah. It's
3: a matter of time, and we managed to, him doing along with Cadillac was kind of a payback because we had put him back in blaster days. I'd put him on shows opening for the blasters. And, um, and I got him a couple of gigs opening for the knitters and things like that. And we took Dwight on the road, the blasters took Dwight on the road to Texas and, and then to New York city. And we, we were doing like three nights at the Ritz and we got Dwight on as the opening act and that got him his record deal with Warner Brothers.
2: Oh, wow.
3: And That's so
2: very he, cool.
3: Yeah, So he, he kind of cut long White Cadillac. like Cadillac. as like a return of favorite thing because I was struggling financially. This is like, you know, late eighties and my solo career was not exactly lighting the world on fire at that point. And I remember going down to Capitol records to the studio and Dwight played it to me. And Dwight was the biggest star in country music at that time and it was a typical dwight move you know it's a great record I-, I love dwight's version but they had like this like two minute long guitar freak out at the end of it by pete anderson and dwight's playing it to me and he's like yeah man this this is gonna fucking piss off country radio fuck them blah blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they were saying they going dwight i'm broke can't you Make it more for country radio, so they'll play it all the time, and I can yeah. make a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> add more fiddle, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um.
3: So yeah, no, I love Dwight's version.
2: Yeah, I've always been a big fan of his. Yeah, he's. Um. You know, unbelievably, we're out of time.
3: Which is, oh my god,
2: I know. Oh There's god. so much more to talk about. <laughs> can well, we have you back sometime?
3: I would love to. I would love to come back anytime you want.
2: Okay, good. We'll do part two.
3: All right, just edit, edit me and make me sound smart, OK?:
2: Oh, no, it's, no editing. Very, very little editing is required. Um, okay. I'd like to end with a song that you of your choice of yours.
3: Oh, um, uh, well, it depends, you know.: what, How About what?
2: something from the Big Bill Brunsey. I love that record so much.
3: Um, yeah, do, uh, do uh, Truck and Little Woman. That's, that's a rocker, you know, that, that,
2: um, Okay. That'll be a good send off.
3: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I, I, am really proud of that one. My brother sings his ass up on it. you know, my guitar playing doesn't suck on it either.
2: Good, good. (laughs) That's what we like to hear. Yeah. There's so much more. I want to talk about your train trips and your so much more, but, and thank you so much for coming to mercy's birthday party in February. That was so meaningful to her. Uh,
3: when, when, I love Miss Mercy. Uh, you know, she she, she got me. You know what I mean? She totally got you from very early on. Early, early on. She knew what I was all about. And, um, you know, and so because of that, I, I always felt, uh, uh, you know, she wrote a thing. I know we're out of time. That's okay. I'm going to hear it. She wrote a thing in the 80s. I can't remember exactly when. I think it was mid-80s for the LA Weekly on Graham Parsons.
2: Oh, yeah. Fantastic piece.
3: Oh, that was it! Brought tears to my eyes, and um, and you know she was such a deep, smart, understanding, compassionate, passionate, um, wild, wonderful <laughs> soul. And that Grant Parsons piece just just it was mind blowing. It was so beautifully, beautifully written, and, and the thoughts uh, and the emotions in it were uh, just just moved me to no end so yeah uh, you know she got Graham Parsons. she got me
2: yeah I used a piece of that and I'm with the band it was so well written and and so uh emotionally wrought you know and and she and I that you know we connected musically too we like the same a lot of the same stuff she got Graham it was like not many people got him while he was alive
3: (laughs) yeah you know I think what she got she and I talked about this one time you know the thing that's sometimes overlooked about him is, is yeah. You know he certainly was one of the architects of, of country rock or modern country. Yeah. Um, but he was also an R and B guy.
2: Oh yeah, he, he sang you know, Dark Into the Street and.
3: Dark, Dark Into the Street. You won't miss your water to the wall once. Yes. You know, yes. and and that came through in his music. You know that he had he he had a you know he had an R and B side. I think that that Mercy understood that. You know.
2: Yep. He was trying to put it all together. Exactly. I like what you do, Dave.
3: <laughs> and with that, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> good, good wrap up. There. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Very Lots great.
2: of love to you, Dave.
3: All right. Same to you.
2: Okay. <laughs> bye.
3: Bye bye.
1: Woman hands up over her head.
3: Did you hear me what I said? She's a truckin' little woman, don't you know? She's a truckin' little woman, don't you know? She's a truckin' little woman, here from Tennessee. Wake up
0: boys, don't you be so cool? This little girl, she's just from school. She got 30 cents, she ain't no fool. She got
3: big eyes, cause she's stubborn as a mule, but she's a truckin' little woman, don't you know? She's a truckin' little woman, don't you know?
2: that was Dave Alvin okay all right Dave and Alvin okay can I just say it Dave fucking Alvin all right so please get his records check him out on YouTube wherever just watch his guitar playing listen to it and get very excited and you've been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party and thank you so much for tuning in. All right? Bye dolls.
1: You've been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. Produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook instagram or twitter find all the pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts find us on facebook at facebook.com backslash pantheon podcasts rock and roll archaeology on instagram and pantheon pods on twitter